This evening we are looking at Ezra chapter 9 and this is also the ninth session in our series of studies in the book of Ezra. This chapter actually deals with sin. Okay, So far it was dealing with uh, building the temple, building the walls, getting people together. Now all that has been done. Worship has started out and then four months have passed by between the previous chapter and this chapter. And during these four months, they have discovered something. What have they discovered? They have discovered that people are living in sin. Where God had specifically told them, do not intermarry with the locals. And as a result, because of their disobedience, God had sent them into captivity. Now, after they have come back from captivity, now back again, you find some of them are still doing it. So as a result, Ezra is so upset with it. He pulls his hair. If you study Nehemiah, you find that Nehemiah pulls the other person's hair. Here, Ezra pulls his hair and then sits down in a, in a state of sorrow, looking at what is happening. So he is like, you know, so surprised. Externals have all been done, you know, the temple has been built, funds have come in, but if this is how they are going to live, then what is the point? What is the point? Okay, so that is going to be our study for this evening. In today's world, we have grown so used to sin that oftentimes it does not shock us anymore. What first shocked us becomes commonplace and routine. And we get into a position of complacency, which will say, hey, that's what it is. That's how the church is today. That's how the people are today. What more can you expect? But that was not Ezra's response. And that should not be our response as well. Because when we get desensitized towards sin and we fail to have the proper response to it, whether it is our own sin or the sin of others, what we are really doing is that we are minimizing it, we are justifying it, we are ignoring it, and we are going on our way doing the same thing, totally unaffected by it. Ezra's reaction was so very different. In Ezra chapter 9 and verse 4, we read that once Ezra set the pace, others also came together. Verse 4 tells us, all who trembled at the words of the God of Israel came and sat with Ezra, came and sat with Ezra. So it was not just Ezra alone. Ezra as a leader took that leadership position. He did it first. You know, he was you know, you know, appalled first and the people came together with him. Now, the interesting thing is they did not go and pull them up first. Okay, They did not go and shout at them first. They do not gossip about them and at first and say, hey, look what type of a lifestyle they are living. No, they first took the problem to God and they allowed God to deal with it. Okay, So that is our study this evening, our response to sin, learning from uh, what Ezra did and how we should not respond to sin from what the Israelites did. Okay, so let's look at the passage this evening, Ezra chapter 9, verses 1 to 4, where we read about the exposure of this sin. <laughs> okay, in verse 1 and 2, we have this 
shocking apostasy that is reported. What was the shopping, shocking uh, now apostasy? In verse 1, you get the summary report of it, which says, Now when these things had been completed, the princes approached me, saying, The people of Israel and the priests and the Levites have not separated themselves from the peoples of the land according to their abomination. Those of the Canaanites, the Hittites, the Perizzites, the Jebusites, the Ammonites, the Moabites, the Egyptians, and the Amorites. Now it says, now when these things you know, had been completed. What was completed? All the construction work. All that they had come to do. Ezra had brought the Levites in and they had started the worship. You know, temple was you know, erected. When all these things have been done <coughs> during this period, Ezra has also been around visiting the different government officials and making sure that funds are coming in, making sure that the building is going without any problem or opposition. And that's what he's been doing during these four months. You know? And in the process of that time, now people as they have been interacting, they find out, hey, this is what has happened. You know? There's an open, flagrant sin of foreign marriages. Now it is interesting, the group that is mentioned, the names that are mentioned, we also find these names in Deuteronomy chapter 7 and verse 1. In Deuteronomy chapter 7 and verse 1, this is what we read. When the Lord your God brings you into the land you are entering to possess and drives out before you many nations, these are the nations, the Hittites, Girgashites, Amorites, Canaanites, Perizzites, Hivites, and Jebusites, seven nations larger and stronger than you. And when the Lord your God has delivered them over to you and you have defeated them, then you must destroy them totally. You must destroy them totally. Verse 3 says, Do not intermarry with them. Do not give your daughters to their sons or take their daughters for your sons, for they will turn your sons away from following me to serve other gods, and the Lord's anger will burn against you and will quickly destroy you. Now, this was the command that God had given to the children of Israel when they have come out of Egypt and they are getting into the promised land. <laughs> and the Lord says, hey, look here, this is what is going to happen. These are foreigners over here who are worshipping their own gods. I want you to maintain your identity. I want you to make sure that you don't intermarry. Now, this was not a question of a, a racist issue where the Lord was saying, don't get married to these guys. No, it was not a question of that. It was a question of these people are not worshipping God and they are worshipping these idols. By you intermarrying, what is going to happen is that they are going to take you away from the faith. This is the reason why the Lord said, do not intermarry, okay? But they did, they suffered for it, captivity. Now they have come back from captivity, but still they don't seem to have learned the lesson. And to top it all, some of the leaders were equally involved in it. Let's get through the names that are mentioned over there. The first group that is mentioned is the Canaanites. The Canaanites obviously were descendants of Canaan, the son of Ham. They are identified in Deuteronomy 7.1 as nations who were greater and stronger than Israel. Now, the Canaanites you know, were a pretty learned group. 
okay they were the ones who had uh, invented the simplified method of writing or they are the ones who invented the alphabet before that you remember it was all by images so these are the ones who invented the alphabet but these individuals are also heavily involved in pagan worship okay they were worshipers of baal they were worshipers of you know, asherah they were worshipers of you know, different other gods related to baal and not only were they worshiping these gods you know but they used to worship them by engaging in sexual immorality involving male and female prostitutes and also sacrificing their children so this is the reason why the lord said hey these guys may be <coughs> pretty good in their knowledge and alphabets and things like that but be careful these guys are also so heavily involved in this idol worship and by involving yourself what will by intermarrying with them what will happen is you will be led astray but these guys obviously have not done it because so many years later on when they come back from babylon these guys are doing the same thing <coughs> second group that is mentioned is the hittites they were the descendants of heth who was the son of canaan okay he is also mentioned in uh, in deuteronomy chapter 7 and verse 1 notable hittites included ephron from whom abraham purchased a burial site you also have uriah the hittite one of the mighty men of david esau married two hittites and solomon also had hittite women in his harem god said nothing doing but these guys were intermarrying with them third group is perizzites the origin of the perizzites is not really mentioned very very clearly but the perizzites are also mentioned in deuteronomy in other words these guys are also a powerful group the next group the fourth group is the jebusites who were the descendants of canaan the son of ham and they lived in the hill country and this is also mentioned this group is also mentioned in deuteronomy chapter 7 and verse 1 they were the original inhabitants of jerusalem then you have the ammonites these were the descendants of ben ami the son of the incestuous relationship between lot and his younger daughter okay notable among the ammonites were nama the wife of solomon the mother of rehobam and you also have tobiah who was one of the major enemies of nehemiah solomon also built a sanctuary for molech which was the detestable chief god of the ammonites and what was detestable about this was child sacrifice was a part of this molech cult okay now if samson as uh, solomon got involved into this primarily because god said don't do it this will be a snare and he didn't listen and that is what he ended up in the sixth group is the moabites the moabites were the descendants of moab who were the moab the son of the incestuous relationship between lot and his older daughter if molech was the god that you know the ammonites were worshiping the moabites their chief god was chemosh chemosh okay and they also had a setup like the you know the jewish people they also had priests and sacrificial system something similar but they obviously they were not you know jews now notable moabites included 
Balaam, you know, who was hired by Balak, who was hired by Balaam, or rather Balak, the king who hired Balaam to curse the Israelites, Eglon, the king who was assassinated by Ehud, and Ruth, the widow of Mahlon and the wife of Boaz. And then you have the Egyptians who could be identified as the descendants of Ham. And the final one, the eighth one group is the Amorites, the Amorites. They were descendants of Canaan, the son of Ham, and they are also mentioned in Deuteronomy chapter 7 and verse 1. Okay, So when they first settled into Canaan, the Israelites were warned not to make a covenant with these nations. You know, you know, because remember, covenant relationships were done how? By giving the daughter in marriage. So the Lord says, don't do that. Don't get into any covenant relationships because then you'd be forced to you know, give your daughters in marriage. The Lord said, don't do it. But they did it. They did it. Okay. And after they have returned, you know, Ezra finds out that it had happened again. It had happened again. And this is why then Ezra calls for a, a, a group coming together to pray and to forsake their sin. Now, a couple of uh, now, more disturbing aspects of this sin, some specifics in verse 2. It says, you know, for they have taken some of their daughters as wives for themselves and for their sons, that was mixed marriages, so that the holy race has intermingled with the peoples of the land. In other words, by mingling the holy with the evil, they have profaned, they have profaned the relationship. And thirdly, the more you know, uh, disturbing aspect of this was, indeed the hands of the princes and the rulers have been foremost in this unfaithfulness. In other words, what it's saying over here is, you know, who are the leaders themselves? Who are the leaders of this flagrant sin of foreign marriages? Who took the lead in doing this? It was the leaders themselves. So when the leaders are flaunting their sin, the congregation said, if the leader can do it, I can also do it. And that's the danger today, isn't it? Now, Malachi gives us a little more insight into this. Malachi was a contemporary prophet to <laughs> Ezra. And he records in his second chapter, you know, you know this information. He castigates the people not only because they are married outside the faith, but some of them have divorced their wives in order to do so. Now, how disturbing can it get? Not only they have intermarried these leaders you know, into these foreign women who are not worshippers of Yahweh, not only did they do that, but in order to do that, they divorced their Jewish wives and then did that. So how disturbing can it get? Okay. Ezra disturbed, definitely. In verses 3 and 4, this is what we find, his response to that. It says, when I heard about this matter, I tore my garment and my robe, pulled some of the hair from my head and my beard, and sat down appalled. Okay. That was a personal humiliation. It was as if he's a leader. And he finds these leaders have become the leaders in this apostasy, and it affects him so very much. There's the shameful humiliation. His reaction or conviction 
of this flagrant sin. Okay. Now look at the words that are used. In verse 4 it says, Then everyone who trembled at the words of the God of Israel on account of the unfaithfulness of the exiles gathered to me, and I sat appalled until the evening offering. Think of these words. You know. First of all, he says, I trembled, was shocked, I was appalled, you know. I tore the, uh, the hair from my head and from my beard. Okay, This is what is happening. First, there is this personal aspect you know, of his response. Then in verse 4, we find everyone joins together and there is this corporate aspect. Okay, Fourthly, we find there is one, we find there is the confession. There is a confession now that takes place. Okay, Now externally, they have shown to these people who are you know, living in sin, how much they have been affected by it. They do not take it lightly. They said, how can these guys do it? But they do not jump to them. They do not curse them. They do not gossip about them. The first thing is they express their sorrow and their grief externally. But it says in verse 5, at the evening offering. This is the time of the evening sacrifice. You know, at this time, Ezra and the people get up. Okay, there's a confession of heartbroken repentance. There's a transition, you know, to a prayer of confession. Look at verse 5. It says, but, but. That's the transition point, isn't it? That's the transition point. But and the evening offering, I arose from my humiliation, even with my garment and my robe torn. Okay. He gets up. Okay. Now he gets up and what does he do? He rises up and then he falls down on his knees and stretched out my hands to the Lord of Lord my God. There's this transition now from just the public sorrow now to get into the part of the temple worship. This is the time for the evening sacrifice. So he gets up, you know, and everybody who are with him gets up. And then he falls before God in surrender to him, acknowledging what the people have done. Okay, And this is his expression. These are the words that he uses in verses 6 and 7, which is a testimony of a pattern of corporate apostasy. Okay, In verse 6, he starts off by including himself in it. There's a personal contrition, a personal sorrow, okay, where he says, And I said, O my God, I am ashamed and embarrassed to lift up my face to thee, my God. Now, was uh, Ezra involved in it? Was in Ezra you know, participating in this apostasy? Did Ezra marry a foreign wife? No. But this his personal acceptance. He says, you know, Lord, I include myself in this. How could these guys have done something like this when you have done so much for them? So there is that personal sorrow. Then if you notice, you know, he uses you know, uh, two metaphors to describe his uh, experience where he says, for our iniquities have risen above our heads and our guilt has grown even to the heavens. You know? So what he's really saying is, you know, it is so bad. It is so bad. We are drowning in guilt. This is not just a casual you know, one-time affair. 
this has become so overwhelming, so overwhelming, okay. And then in verse 7, he speaks about the enormity of their sin, the enormity of their pattern of apostasy. He looks back, he looks back in time. In verse 7, he says, since the days of our fathers to this day, we have been in great guilt and on account of our iniquities, we, our kings, our priests have been given into the hand of the kings of the lands, to the sword, to captivity, to plunder, to open shame, as it is to this day. He looks back. He looks back and says, Lord, there's this pattern. There's this historic timeline right from Deuteronomy. You told us not to do it. We did it. And then the punishment came. Then you delivered us, Lord. We are so grateful to you. And then we are back to square one. We are doing the same thing again. Verse 8 and 9, he speaks about the testimony of God's grace. Yes, this has been the timeline of the uh, Israelites' apostasy down through the years from the time they came out of Egypt. But you have been a very grateful God. So he expresses in verse 8 and 9 how God has been so gracious in spite of all that they have done. It says, but now for a brief moment, grace has been shown from the Lord our God to leave us an escaped remnant and to give us a peg in his holy place that our God may enlighten our eyes and grant us a little reviving in our bondage. Look at the words that you know, Ezra uses over here. He says, God, you have been so gracious in a brief moment of grace. Okay. There has been this window of grace. We have been living like this, but you have been so gracious to us you know, that even though it's only around 50,000 plus 5,000, 55,000 people who have come back you know, from Babylonian captivity, even though it's only this small remnant, even from among this remnant, Lord, this is what is happening. But you have given us a remnant, even in that remnant, by giving us a peg in your holy place so that you would open up our eyes to see the truth. Look at the words, you know, the, a peg in his holy place. It's like a, a figure of speech. Okay? In those days, houses didn't really have cupboards or storage closets. Okay? And, uh, things were stored on pegs. Okay? This is like you know, some of the olden houses still have them. You know, pegs on the wall where you would put your clothes. So that was a symbol of, you know, okay, this is your place, this is your clothes, this is your spot. Also, when you're thinking about the tents that they used to move from place to place, it was the tent pegs, you know, that were put into the ground, which was like a foothold, okay. So the analogy that, you know, Ezra is using over here is, it is just one tent peg, it is just one uh, peg in the wall, you know, for our clothes to be put in. But that is itself, you know, is a sign of your graciousness, you know. And he's responding to God and saying, God, you have been so, so grateful, so, so grateful. And then in verse 9, he speaks about God's covenant. He speaks about God's covenant. He says, we are slaves, yet in our bondage, God has not forsaken us. 
but has extended loving kindness to us in the sight of the kings of Persia to give us reviving to uh, raise up the house of our God, to restore its ruins, and to give us a wall in Judah and Jerusalem. He says, Lord, not only have you brought us back, not only have you given us that little foothold, that's the remnant, but we thank you, Lord, looking back that you have been with us all these years. Even when we were in Babylon in captivity, you gave us favor in the eyes of the Babylonian kings, in the eyes of the Persian kings. And as a result, you have enabled us to come back to this place. Lord, we thank you that you did not let us go. That's what he is speaking and addressing before God. Then in verse 10, he says, you know, but in spite of all this, Lord, you know, this is the communication that is happening. There's a transparency that is taking place. Yes, you are God, you are good, but our God, what shall we say after this? He says, Lord, this is how good you have been, but what can we say? For we have forsaken thy commandments. Very clear apostasy. We have forsaken your commandments. He is not in a mincing words over here. Now he says, we have clearly forsaken your commandments. Maybe recalling to mind Deuteronomy chapter 7 and verse 1, you know, he remembers that. Then there is also a clear danger that he looks back in, in, in the passage in Deuteronomy and says, which thou hast commanded by thy servants the prophets, saying, the land which you are entering to possess is an unclean land, with the uncleanness of the peoples of the land, with their abominations which have filled it from end to end and with their impurity. The danger was very clearly specified before them. So he tells God, you know, God, this is the situation. We have forsaken what you said we have to be careful about. We did not you know, see the danger that you forewarned us about. And then what did we do? Even though he gave us a clear warning which said, so now do not give your daughters to their sons or take their daughters to your sons. Never seek their peace or their prosperity that you may be strong and eat the good things of the land and leave it as an inheritance to your sons forever. Even though, Lord, you gave us this clear direction, but still, but still, we went away. Okay. So as a result, verse 13 to 15, you know, Ezra says, Lord, we do not deserve any more grace from you, okay? You know, we are abandoning ourselves to your mercy. Verse 13 says, there's no justification for our continued existence. In spite of how bad we were, how bad we are, you have been still so gracious and good. When we look into our lives and, and we look at what is happening right now before our eyes, he says, there's no justification for what we are doing. And after all that has come upon us for our evil deeds and our great guilt, since thou, our God, has requited us less than our iniquities deserve and has given us an escaped remnant as this. He said, Lord, you have given this small remnant, but still, this is how the remnant is behaving. And as a result, you know, no way, no way can it be excused at all. The Jews were punished to a certain extent for their sins. <clears throat> they were exiled and nearly wiped out. In the times of the Persian kings, however, the Lord saved a remnant who returned to the land. They were there as a token of his love and grace. 
And now if these exiles committed evil deeds and heaped guilt on themselves, the remnant came into the danger of being destroyed and nothing will be left. It is this kind of reasoning which we have in these verses. Now, so far there has been no uh, uh, asking for forgiveness. What Ezra is doing in view of the, you know, all the public around is trying to help them to understand the gravity of their sin. You know, he'll come to them and asking for forgiveness later. But the first part is what Ezra is doing. He's helping them to see what they have done. <coughs> Verse 14 says, Shall we break again break their commandments and intermarry with the people who commit these abominations? He says, there's no defense, you know, there's no defense for our continued you know, apostasy. There's no excuse for you know, behaving like this. You know. It doesn't make any sense at all. It doesn't make any sense at all. Okay. And then he says, would thou not be angry with us to the point of destruction until there's no remnant or any who escape? Make sense at all, Lord. If after all that we have done, you don't destroy us, you know. You know, we cannot you know, sort of see another any other response. Your justice, your holiness will definitely demand a punishment. You know, and this is how heartbroken he is when he is pleading before God. So his focus at this point was on getting the people to see the seriousness of their sin. He had to get them to see their sins as a terrible affront to the holiness of God. And it's a threat to their continued existence as a people. True confession must always come first. True confession must always come first. And this is why in verse 15, he says there is no other recourse apart from God. You know, he says, God, now up to you. Only you are the one who can do something about this situation. You know, O Lord God of Israel, thou art righteous. Thou art righteous. What does it mean? He says, Lord, it's not your fault. You know, you are the righteous one. You know, it is not your fault that we are like this. Okay. And he says, you know, there's no other hope, for we have been left an escaped remnant as it is this day. And he says, We have no excuses. Behold, we are before thee in our guilt. For no one can stand before thee because of this. What Ezra is pleading before God is, he says, Lord, we have no right to stand in your presence. But we come before you in all humility, in all brokenness of heart, asking you that you would consider us. That is his pleading before God. Now, what should be? our response to sin. Now, what is the godly reaction to sin? Now, if you notice, we learn these lessons from Ezra's life here this evening. Ezra did not take the news of you know, uh, how these guys had intermarried very lightly. He does not say, you know, that is how it will be. So many years they have lived here. They have you know, had children over here. That is what it will be. No, no. He does not condone their behavior. Rather, he tore his clothes, pulled some hair from his head and his beard, and sat down appalled and speechless until the time of the evening sacrifice. Now, remember, how a person reacts to the news of sin tells a lot about that person. How a person 
reacts to sin, to the news of sin, to the news of sin of somebody else, you know, you know, how do you react to that? Now, do you want more juicy information? Do you want, you know, so to pull that person down, you know, what is your reaction when you hear about sin in others and also sin in your own lives? What is your reaction or what should be the godly reaction? Couple of important principles. Principle number one, the godly reaction to sin is to recognize it as sin from scripture is to recognize it as sin from scripture. Remember, rebellion is a very slippery slope. It starts when we fail to acknowledge the sin in our lives. And as we continue <coughs> to walk in that same direction, you know, it, and it steepens and, uh, the slope and we and, uh, fall very fast. Okay. Now, how do we know what is right and wrong? <coughs> Obviously, from what the Bible tells us, from what the scripture tells us. How could Ezra with all confidence say, what do you guys you know, have done? You know, he comes before God and says, we have sinned. How was he able to say that with so much of confidence? Because Ezra knew the scriptures. Remember, you know, he brought the scriptures to the people. He taught it to the people. Obviously, he was very familiar with the book of Deuteronomy, which was the basic you know, textbook, as it were, for the Jews. So Ezra is familiar with that. So Ezra chapter 7, he is familiar with, okay? And he knew that God's word has very specifically said it should not be done, okay? So the first important you know, uh, principle is, you know, that we recognize sin as sin from scripture. <clears throat> now, the reason why God said you should not intermarry is, you know, so that there is no syncretism. In other words, there is no mixture, you know. God wanted the people to be wholly set apart. But synchristic worship is a mixed up worship. Pagan worship and Christian worship put together. And when this happens, you know, the danger is because you don't blatantly deny Christianity. It is Christianity plus something, you know. And when that happens, it appears as if it is the truth, half truth, but it is definitely dangerous. So this is why we need to be careful. We need to be careful because Satan always sugarcoats sin to make it look appealing. We mistakenly think that sin will get us what we want, but it always leads to bondage and ruin. So identify sin and sin as sin on the basis of what the scripture tells us about it. Okay, Not on the basis of what people are saying today, but on the basis of what scripture tells us about it. Secondly, the godly reaction to sin is to mourn over it, to mourn over it. That's what Ezra and the people did, isn't it? <laughs> it was R.W. Dale who said that it is partly because sin does not provoke our own wrath that we do not believe that sin provokes the wrath of God. Because we are not upset with sin, we think that God is also not upset with sin. Martin Lloyd-Jones says, I cannot help feeling that the final explanation of the state of the church today is a defective sense of sin and a defective doctrine of sin. That's what he very clearly mentions. He said the state of the church is today like this in a, in a lukewarm condition because you know, there is no in a sense of sin, a defective doctrine of sin. Charles Spurgeon <coughs> puts it across this way. He says, a very great portion of modern revivalism 
has been more a curse than a blessing because it has led thousands to a kind of peace before they have known their misery, restoring the prodigal to the father's house and never making him say, Father, I have sinned. How can he be healed who is not sick? Or he be satisfied with the bread of life who is not hungry? The old-fashioned sense of sin is despised. The consequence is that men leap into religion and then leap out again. Unhumbled, they came to the church. Unhumbled, they remain in it. And unhumbled, they go from it. What are they saying? We have made Christianity as such a simple, easy thing. All that you have to say, you say yes. There's no sorrow for sin. There's no understanding for sin. There's no understanding what it costs the Lord to pay for our sins. Christianity or Jesus has been taken as an add-on to what you're already doing. And as a result, now there's no growth. There's no vibrancy because there's no life in the person. Thirdly, the godly reaction to sin is to confess it without excuse to the of mercy. mercy. Confession without excuse. You know? recognizing that this is what it is, you know, no excuse. Lord, we deserve your punishment, you know, but you're the righteous one. We come to you in submission, acknowledging our sin before you. Let me close with two quotes. J.C. Ryle said, Christ is never fully valued until sin is clearly seen. Christ is never fully valued until until sin is clearly seen. And C.S. Lewis observed, when a man is getting better, he understands more and more clearly that evil is still in him. In other words, when he's coming closer to the Lord, when he's maturing, he recognizes that there is still more evil in him. But when a man is getting worse, he understands his own badness less and less. Grow in godliness, like Ezra, we too will react more strongly to our own sins and to the sins of God's people. And the more we recognize that, we'll come to the foot of the cross where God's mercy is available for us when we come in true, genuine repentance and the righteous one is able to turn us around and give us a new beginning. Let me close with a couple of application questions this evening. (coughs) Number one, Why is it essential that we go to the Bible as our only authoritative source of right and wrong? Secondly, why do we need to keep before us the Bible's picture of the devastating effects of sin? Number three, some argue that confession does not involve feelings but only faith. Why is this unbiblical? What should we do if we lack the proper emotional response or reaction to sin? Number four, To what degree should we mourn over the sins of others? Are we supposed to go around depressed all the time? Number five, tell whether you have become numb to sin. Number six, does response seem over the top to you? Why or why not? Do you see Christian leaders expressing corporate solidarity with the past sins of the Christian church? Finally, number eight. How often do your prayers not make a list of requests from God? Father, we thank you, Lord, for this time. Thank you, Lord. Ezra was so upset of the people. 
when we look around, so much of sin in the world, in the church. Lord, that you'd help us to look into our own lives even this evening. Our response to sin. It lightly, how much it cost you to pay for our sins. Father, we pray that you'd help us to be like Ezra, standing on the truth of your word, willing to get people together to revive their hearts to holiness. Lord, we pray that even these last days, you would raise up that remnant who would be true to you, that remnant who would to give themselves so fully to you, Lord, that you would be able to change their lives, transform them, that the world will see, Lord, who we really are. The world will see that we belong to you. The world would acknowledge you because of the life that they can see in us. We give ourselves into your hands, work this out in our lives. Even this week we pray in Jesus' name. Amen.